and I hope that you do, please take them out and turn to the book of Haggai. I'm going to help some of you out because you're going to be having a hard time finding it. It's in the Old Testament toward the end. And if you get to the Z books, Zephaniah and Zechariah, Haggai is right in the middle. So you'll be, you'll be close. It's the third book from the end of the Old Testament right between, right between Zechariah and Zephaniah. We, we good? Popping, we're, we're all right. We're all right. We're, having, we're, we're getting all of our bugs worked out this morning on our, on our mics. Haggai is one of those minor prophets. He's not minor because he doesn't have anything important to say. Matter of fact, I've entitled this sermon series Major Messages from a Minor Prophet. They, they call minor prophets because their books are relatively short, especially in comparison to the major prophets, which would be Isaiah and Zechariah and, and uh, uh, excuse me, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, those who are a lot longer. But if you'll notice, Haggai is only two chapters long. Uh, only 38 verses, so I think we'll get through this before 18 months is over with. Uh, but I do want us to look through it over the next few weeks and uh, understanding that the context of it tells us that Haggai is a post-exilic prophet. What that simply means is that Haggai, along with Zechariah and along with Malachi, were men that God called to bring his messages to the children of Israel, to the Jews, who had been held in captivity, but then had been released to go back to their homeland in Jerusalem. Um, in fact, it's probably just helpful for us to have just a little bit of historical background here. You'll recall that it was Solomon, David's son, who ruled Israel and, and, and who had kept the kingdom together. He is also the one who built the temple, the temple there in Jerusalem that was was one of those wonders of the world. It was so beautiful. It was so magnificent, built of such expensive and, and wonderful uh, material that people from all over the ancient world came to Jerusalem in order that they might be able to, to just see the temple itself. The temple was a national treasure for the Jews, and it was highly revered as the place where God dwelt among his people. But you would also know just from reading and studying the Old Testament that the Jews, though, did not keep their hearts toward God. As a matter of fact, they, they turned their hearts away from God and chased after idols and served idols. And, and so God brought about their, their uh, judgment upon them in order to purify them. And so in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, who was the, the king of Babylon, came in and, and just ransacked Jerusalem. In fact, tore, tore down the walls from Jerusalem uh, just raised the whole city, including Solomon's beautiful temple. And all of the, the children who, of Israel who lived there at the time who weren't slaughtered by Nebuchadnezzar were taken captive and taken all the way back into captivity in Babylon. And it was later in 538 B.C. that Cyrus, who was the king of Persia, wound up defeating Babylon and defeating Nebuchadnezzar and and ended up inheriting all of these Jewish captives. And so he turned them loose and released them to go back to their homeland in Jerusalem and into, into the whole area of Israel. And many Jews took Cyrus up on his offer. They traveled back to the land of, of Judah. And upon arriving in Jerusalem, what they found was this city that had once been so great and so beautiful, but had been completely leveled by Nebuchadnezzar's army. In fact, Ray Pritchard puts it this way, Jerusalem looked like Atlanta after Sherman. It looked like Richmond after Grant. It looked like Berlin 
after the Allied forces were through with it in World War II. The entire city was left as a smoking ruin of rubble. So when these post-exilic Jews returned to their homeland, we read in, the, in the, the book of Ezra, which is the historical book that sort of parallels this prophetic book of Haggai, we read that these people came back and they decided they wanted to rebuild the temple. But it wasn't very long into the rebuild process that they encountered some resistance from some of their neighbors, particularly to the north. And they also encountered issues with regard to financing the rebuild. And then there were those who had lived in Jerusalem before, had, had made it all the way through the time of captivity, but who came back to Jerusalem. And they were disheartened because they knew that that temple would never look like the previous one. It would never be as grand and never be as magnificent. And so perhaps for all of these reasons and more, what we read and what we understand is that the building, the rebuilding of the temple just stopped. It just came to a grinding halt. And by the time that we get to the book of Haggai, 18 years have passed. The people still had not built the temple. They had not restored it. Instead, it just lay there as... Uh, as a reminder, a constant reminder of what life had once been in that great city, but also as a testimony to the judgment that God had sent upon Israel because of their wickedness and their disobedience. And it was on to this scene that the Lord sends his prophet Haggai to deliver his message to his people. So with that as a background, let's hear the word of the Lord this morning. We're going to begin in verse 1 and read down through verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. In the second year of King Darius in the sixth month of the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to be in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Says the Lord of hosts because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and all, on all the labor of your hands. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. 
Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for our opportunity today to spend some time reading it. I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction into our lives. And that as a result of that conviction, we would repent of areas that you bring to our, know, our understanding and help us to obey you. I pray that we do that for your glory and for our good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you feel the same way that I do, but I love the snooze button on an alarm clock. It's one of my favorite inventions. I don't know who came up with it, but they deserve, they deserve every dollar they ever got from that invention. There's nothing better than to be laying there in the morning. I've got this alarm clock that my wife tells me I've had since before we were married. I didn't realize I'd had it that long. There's a reason I got it. It's got a big old round button that you can smack. And it turns that nasty noise off that goes off to wake me up in the morning. Now, I have to have that noise to get me up, but I despise it. And so I smack that snooze button to turn it off. And I get nine more minutes of peace. And I like it. Matter of fact, I've been known to hit it more than once. I know some people who set their alarm clock 30 minutes before they have to get up just so that they can enjoy waking up gradually. Here's the thing about snooze buttons, though. There's a danger in them. The danger of the snooze button is that the call of a comfy bed and a nice pillow can be so alluring that one might decide to smack that snooze button too many times. And if you hit the snooze button too often then you might be late for a meeting, you might be late to work, and dare I say, you might be late to church. Here's the thing, pressing the snooze button too often poses a problem because as that oft-repeated phrase is, you snooze, you... That's exactly right, and that's the title of my sermon this morning. You snooze, you lose, and in many ways, I believe that that phrase is an apt description of what had been taking place with these Jews who had returned home to Jerusalem after their captivity, particularly as it related to them rebuilding the temple. The first verse of this passage tells us that the book of Haggai is one of the easiest books in all the Bible to actually put a date on. It's not always easy to hang a date on the books of the Bible, but this one is actually pretty easy. It tells us that it that it was it, the word of the Lord came to the prophet to the people via the prophet Haggai in the second year of King Darius, and that allows scholars to be able to date the the year of this book to being 520 B.C. Not only that, but it says it came on the the sixth month, the first day of the month, and scholars have been able to go back and look at the the calendar and bring it up forward to to our current modern day calendar, and and that date actually coincides with. Our date, August the 29th. So August the 29th, 520 B.C., that's where we are here as Haggai begins. And, and, but, but the important thing about the fact that the, the writer tells us that it happened on the first day of the month is because on the, it was on the first day of the month when new moon offerings were, were brought to the temple. And, and that was marking a time of celebration. People were happy. They were rejoicing in the fact that, that there had been produce brought and, and, and been gained from the ground that they could take as an offering to the temple. But how could they celebrate and how festive could they be when they take it to the ruins of what had once been a great temple and a temple that had no, long, no longer stood? So the Lord sends this prophet Haggai to deliver this message to his people. And interestingly enough, Haggai's name literally means festive 
or festival. Now, I find that interesting because what we immediately know is that the timing of the Lord's message as well as the name of the Lord's messenger would have served as a means of sounding an alarm to the people of Jerusalem that they had a problem on their hands that God was sending a message for them to understand. Now, I want you to notice that the author informs us that the message that Haggai came to deliver was not his own message. It was actually a message directly from the Lord. He was simply the messenger who brought the message. God was the one who, who gave the message, and, and he tells us who he gave it to. He, gave it, he, he went and, and spoke in its immediate context to two men. Zerubbabel was the first one. Zerubbabel's name means literally the seed of Babylon, and that means it's probably because he was born in Babylonian captivity. The other person who was there is named Joshua. He's not the Joshua from the book of Joshua. He's much later in time, but this Joshua was, was the one who served as the high priest for Jerusalem. And so Haggai comes and brings a message of God to these two, to to the one who served as the ruler and the one who served as the high priest. And therefore, they were the ones who represented the people of Israel there in Jerusalem. Verse 2 says, thus says the Lord of hosts. This is the second time that the author reminds us that the message comes from God, not from the prophet. And he says this, he says, this people says. Now, I stopped when I read that. Isn't that an interesting way for God to address his people? As this people, he doesn't address them as my people. We would expect that. My people says. Instead, though, he says, this people says. And that is an indicator that the relationship between that people and God was suffering. They, they were not enjoying a close relationship with one another. God himself looks at them and calls them this people, not my people. We ought to take note of that. So God says, this people says, well, what do they say? Well, this people says the time has come. Excuse me, the time has not come. The time that the Lord's house should be rebuilt. Now, I won't bore you with all the details, but grammatically in Hebrew, the way when, when you really understand that sentence and the structure of it, it's actually a, a, a sentence that was repeated over and over again. So in other words, every time the people came through the city of Jerusalem and saw the temple in a state of ruins, this would have been the excuse that they would have offered. The time has just not yet come for the temple to be rebuilt. The time has just not come. Haggai doesn't tell us all the reasons. We talked about some of them earlier. They were probably financial reasons. They were probably political reasons, objections from neighbors, anything. But the point simply was the time had not yet come. I once knew a man who uh, his wife had given him a little round, like a coin, but it was wood. And it had letters T-U-I-T -T on it. And she told him, I want you to carry that in your pocket. Because inevitably, whenever she would ask him, have you done the things that I asked you to do this week? And he said, I ain't got around to it yet. She goes, yes, you do. You got it in your pocket. <laughs> now go on and do what I asked you to do. Evidently, the Jews were a lot like that man and certainly not like me because I do all of my stuff as soon as my wife asks me to do them. 
But if you've ever put something off and delayed doing something and you just couldn't find the motivation to actually accomplish something that you knew you needed to do, we can begin to identify with these Jews. We can begin to identify with the fact that they just, the time has just not yet come. Well, here's what I want you to know. The Lord, whatever the reasons were, the Lord was not impressed with them. You see, it was God's will that the temple be rebuilt. And after all, it was the Lord's house. However, these people had just allowed other things to become priorities in their lives. And as a result, they had degenerated into a state of spiritual lethargy. They had determined that the time was just not right to follow the Lord. And I believe in understanding that, there is a word of caution here for us modern-day believers. Whenever someone decides that their own desires are more important to them than being obedient to God's desires, there will always be excuses to come up with why now is just not the time. Lord, I'll do what you want me to do after, after the kids are grown and out of the house. Lord, I'll, I'll follow you and I'll, I'll make the commitment that you want me to make after I finally get this mortgage paid off. Lord, I, I'll do what you want to do, but I really need to do it after, you know, I, really, I want to get married first. I want to have children first. or I want the children to be gone from the house first, whatever the case may be. I want to do other things first. Let me do them first, and then, then I will take care of the things that you want me to do. And what I want you to know is this, something we've taught our own children in our own home, that we need to be reminded of as adults, and that is delayed obedience is equivalent to disobedience. And I want you to know the Lord's not impressed with our excuses whenever we come up with them for why we don't do what he wants us to do in the time that he wants us to do it. That leads me to the first point that I want you to see this morning. First point simply is that. Excuses often lead to delayed obedience, which is equivalent to disobedience. That seemed to be the scenario that was facing the Jews there in Jerusalem as they had returned from captivity. Now notice that in verses 3 and 4, the reader is reminded for a third time that it was, it, it was being said, what was being said to them came from the Lord and not from Haggai. And in doing so, the Lord asks a question. He says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now the fact that there were paneled houses gives us a little bit of indication. There were some people who were living pretty high. They, they, they lived in nice homes. They had been uh, come back because and, 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 most of those homes would not have had paneling on the inside. So at least some of them were living lavishly and comfortably. And yet all the while they were living that way, the house of God lay in ruins, neglected, an object of disinterest. And in these verses, what we are come to understand is that the selfish interests of the people are brought into glaring display for us. In effect, the Lord poses a question about priorities. And he asks the people, whose interests are more important to you, mine or your own? What that alerts us to is that that same spiritual lethargy or laziness that we, we saw earlier often results from our own selfish pursuits. The people's excuse of bad timing for rebuilding the temple was just really an attempt to mask the real reason for their delay. And the real reason for their delay was a callous display of self-interest. You know, whether they were ready to admit it or not, 
those post-exilic Jews had begun to think that the world and, and even their own religion sort of revolved around them. God had brought these people back from captivity and in their initial rush of enthusiasm and gratefulness for what God had done, they had begun to rebuild that temple, but they never got further than the foundation. And then their gratitude and their, their interest in God's priorities, their devotion to the Lord ultimately wore off. and Self-interest surfaced and their attention switched to their own personal wants and their own personal desires. And they could tell one another all day long that it just simply wasn't time to build the temple, but that simply wasn't true. It was just inconvenient to them because they had another agenda. Their agenda was one that was motivated by their own selfish pursuits. That leads me to the second thing that I think we need to derive from this text this morning. And that's this. Misplaced priorities lead us to investing in things other than those which bring glory to God, which is disobedience. When we allow other priorities to come into our lives, things other than what God brings into our lives, and we invest our time and energy into those things, then we're being disobedient. Here's something that you and I must always grapple with. Here's the question that we must always ask ourselves. Where are my priorities? Let me rephrase it a different way. Who do I want to please most in my life? With whom am I most concerned with their pleasure. This text calls for believers to evaluate what's most important and to determine who is at the center of their belief system. And it clearly tells us that as believers, if we're investing ourselves into anything less than that which brings glory to God, then we are living a life of disobedience. Furthermore, like those Israelites, God is sending his word to us, telling us it's time to stop pressing the snooze button and wake up to the realities of our actions. Verse 5, verse 5 gives us a fourth reminder. Do you ever wonder why the, why the writer here is making sure that we understand this, this message didn't come from the messenger? And so when y'all leave here today, please remember that. Don't be mad at the messenger the message comes from God, but the messenger has a responsibility to cut it straight and to give the message to the people. And the people have the responsibility to hear the message and apply the message to their lives. And so in verse 5, for the fourth time, we, write, we hear, thus says the Lord of hosts. And this is what he says, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Literally, it says, set your heart upon your ways. It's calling for introspection. And what it really gets to is the fact that the, the rebuilding of the temple was not the problem. The problem, that was only the external to something, that gives you the indication of something greater going on inside. And the real problem was, was not their finances. The real problem was their fidelity. They were, not, they were not being faithful to God. And so in considering their ways, God reveals to them in verse 6, you have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. 
You ever felt like that? You don't have to raise your hand. You ever felt like that? I know I have. And as I was, I was reading this, I thought to myself, you know, these Jews could have really been the ones that actually wrote that song, not the Rolling Stones. I can't get no satisfaction. They couldn't find satisfaction anywhere. No matter how hard they tried. No matter how hard they worked. No matter how much they saved, it was just like they had holes in their pockets, holes in their bags, holes in their bank accounts. According to verse 6, the people were caught in a web of diminishing returns. You know, oftentimes when things like that happens, we will look outside of ourselves to find out what's the real culprit. Because it, it, it's, it can't be us. It can't be our problem. It's got to be something else that's causing this to happen. It's got to be some other source that's creating this problem. But God says, uh-uh. You don't have to look any further than at yourself because he tells them that they needed to understand it was their disobedient excuses and it was their misplaced priorities that because of them, God had come to send judgment upon them. Look down in verse 9. Verse 9, we get a greater in-depth view of it. He says, you looked for much and indeed it came to little and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Because my house is in ruins while every one of you runs to your house. Verse 10 and 11, the prophet tells the people that, of Judah that all the things which had, he had already described back in verse 6 and even again down in verse 9, that they were, they were not being blessed because of their selfishness and because of their disobedience. He says, therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and on the mountains and on the grain and the new wine and the oil and whatever the ground brings forth on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. It was God who stood behind it and was, was creating this, this scenario in their lives. And this is where I want to be very, very careful about what I say, but I also want to be very, very clear about what I say. I am not saying that just because a person goes through challenging times that it is the result of disobedience. After all, Jesus himself said the rain falls upon the just and the unjust alike. Nevertheless, I do want you to know that in this passage, God clearly points his people to the many areas in which they had suffered, to their fields without produce, to their labor without profit, to their fleeting riches, to their unsatisfied hunger. And he says clearly that he allowed those things to enter into their lives in order to get their attention, in order to bring them to the place where they would be open and willing to realize that their sin and their disobedience was what had brought all of that upon them. That's what leads me to the third point that I want you to see. The third point simply is this. Disobedience will inevitably lead to God's divine judgment. Disobedience will inevitably lead to God's divine judgment. The Israelites had excused their laziness in doing what they knew needed to be done and in the process their priorities had gotten out of whack and they had put their own self-interests ahead of the Lord's and as a result, God had allowed many different forms of suffering to fall upon them in order to bring them to their senses. And now on the first day of the sixth month of the second year of King Darius, he sends his prophet Haggai to interpret for them 
all that had occurred. And that's what brings me to verses 7 and 8, and I will hurry, I promise. Verse 7, Haggai reminds his hearers for the fifth time. It's not my message. It's the message of God. And here's the message. Consider your ways. You see, that's the second time he said that. Consider your ways. That is a call to introspection. It is a call to evaluate your own life. It is a call that calls you to look inside yourself and to evaluate your circumstances based upon that. And what he says is that when a person evaluates themselves and recognizes their sin of disobedience, then they should turn from that disobedience. You see, really to consider your ways is actually a call to repent. For one to really evaluate their own lives is really a call for them to evaluate it in light of what God has said and then to repent of the areas of your life where you find yourself lacking. And when repentance takes place, conviction comes and the proper result of, a, of, of repentance is to turn from the direction that one had been traveling and to begin travel on a new path. And here's where I want you to see that. Verse 8 gives that exact prescription. He, he follows the command to consider your ways in verse 7 with the active commands of verse 8. Go up to the mountain, bring wood, and build the temple. That's exactly what they had failed to do for 18 years. Since coming back from captivity for 18 years, the foundation was the only thing of the temple that remained. God said, go up to the mountains. Get the wood, get the cedar, get the wood that's needed. Bring it down here and build my temple. Go, bring, build. That was the path of obedience that would follow their considering their ways and repentance. You see how that works? That's what leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning. Listen. When, when we are guilty of disobedience by making excuses and, 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 and misplacing our priorities, you know, the only proper response to the message of God's word is to repent and obey. Turn. Turn from the direction that you've been going. Consider your ways. Turn from it and obey God and travel the path of obedience. Now listen. Verse 8 goes on to say, don't do that just so that you can open the floodgates of heaven and be blessed again. Don't do that. Don't allow your motivation just simply to be, well, God, you're going to take the pressure off of me that I've been experiencing. Don't let, don't let your motivation to repent and obey just simply be something that's going to benefit you. No, notice what he says. Go build that that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. Listen, the implication is that the accompanying of the Lord's pleasure and the Lord's glory was the fact that the Lord himself would once again dwell among his people. And you see, that's what they had missed. The people, of, the people who had come back failed to recognize that God was not dwelling among them. And they were chasing all these other priorities when they were failing to understand that the greatest thing that they needed was what they did not have, and that was the presence of God. And here's what I want you to know this morning. 
When we get to the New Testament, we recognize there's no more temple for us to go worship at. Matter of fact, Solomon's temple was raised. This temple that they would build would be raised. Another one would be, there's no temple. So does that mean it doesn't apply? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, what we read when we read in John's gospel, the very first chapter, we read about him telling us about Jesus and he tells us that he is the living word of God. And in verse 14 of John's gospel, he says that word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ came to dwell among us. And when he came, he came to die for our sins so that we who were far away from God because of our sins might be brought near to him so that our sins might be forgiven and we might experience pardon and we might experience the freedom that comes from knowing him. And then he promises this. He will give us his Holy Spirit. And when he gives us his Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus, you know what you and I become individually? The temple of the Holy Spirit. When you confess your sins and repent of them and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is given to you as a gift by God, as a seal upon your life. And you become the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the first question that I have to ask you this morning is, is that true of you? Have you repented of your sins? trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you, that you might be forgiven and redeemed and pardoned. Are you the temple of the Holy Spirit? If you say no, then I want you to know this morning is that the Bible clearly tells you you are lost. You are lost and you are headed for destruction because you stand under the condemnation of God because of your sin. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to die so that you might be saved. And so the very first thing that I would say to you this morning is, if you have never trusted in Christ, if you've never humbled yourself before him, there is no better time than now. He calls upon you to repent and to obey. But if you say, yes, I have done that, I have repented and I have obeyed and I have trusted in Christ and that I am truly the temple of the Holy Spirit, then let me ask you this follow-up question. How important is that to you? You see, is that fact an important priority in your life? Does God live within you? Does, does, and if he does, does that, does that spur you on to live a life of obedience to him? Living a life that pleases him? Or like these post-exilic Jews, are you just more concerned with satisfying your own personal desires and agendas than ensuring that God's temple does not lie in ruins? In the words of the prophet Haggai, I encourage you to consider your ways. Consider your ways. And see if you are settling for something less than the pleasure of God and his glory. That really is the point, isn't it? In my mind this week as I was reading this text, and you can tell a little bit about me and what my, how my priorities work, as I was reading verse 6 and then verse 9 and 10 and 11, I had this mental image of a guy in a four-wheel drive pickup truck. And he's, in a, he's out in a field in the middle of some mud, and he's got to go uphill. And he's, he's gunning that engine. He's giving it all he's got. And his wheels are just spinning and throwing mud everywhere, and it sounds like a fun time until you realize I can't get out. And he's 
cutting it this way and he's cutting it that way and he's doing everything he can to get out of the mud and all he's doing is sliding further and further back. And I think to myself, what a good God that would be to allow that to happen. And you think, good, how in the world could that be good? Brothers and sisters, it is good when God lets us come to the end of ourselves and lets us come to recognize that we can mash the gas all we want to and we can claw to rise to the highest of heights in our companies and we can pursue all of the goals that we have in our lives and we can spin our wheels and keep throwing up mud and making lots of noise and going nowhere but backwards and he will be a good God to let that happen until we come to the place where we realize I've got nowhere else to turn but to him because the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life is what allows me to be the temple of God's Holy Spirit. And if I allow my life to lie in ruins, I'm doing nothing more. Nothing more. But what these post-exilic Jews were doing. And God, in his mercy and in his grace, says, consider your ways. Go. Bring and build. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. This is for the people of God. Let's pray.